I'd love to be here to see that. I would. All right, let's open our Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 John chapter 3. And this evening we're studying, once again, the last few verses in this third chapter. And the theme, as it has been for quite some time, is the doctrine of assurance. And uh, we're in the doctrine, or we're studying the doctrine of assurance, because overall that is the major theme that we find here in 1 John. And we've already discussed that it is possible to have assurance. The Bible does teach that once you have received Christ, that you are eternally secure in that commitment. And the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that he had confidence, having placed his faith in Christ, that what he had committed to the Lord would be kept until the time that he would see Jesus face to face. And God wants us to have that same kind of confidence. He's promised to preserve us in the faith. And 1 John was written to help us to find that same kind of confidence. And uh, John teaches us to look for this in the evidence of Christ's work in our life. True salvation always produces the evidence. And there is where we have to go to determine whether we are true believers in Christ or not. And in this particular section, John is dealing with the consequences of assurance in your life. And some good things happen to you. When you, when you know that you know Christ, I mean, it, it changes your whole outlook. It, it just makes you uh, really rejoice in the Lord. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next message, uh, more so than I will tonight. But the subject this evening is condemned or convinced. And the title comes from verses number 21 and 22 in the third chapter. So our reading tonight is beginning with the 18th verse, 1 John 3, verse number 18. And John says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemneth not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandment dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. At first glance, these verses seem to be very straightforward. And you've probably read these countless numbers of times and really not given them uh, too much thought about what they mean. And that's, a, that's the case a lot of times with our Bible reading, is that we look at the Bible, we read the chapters, we read the verses, and we don't really consider the meaning that's there. And as soon as we're finished reading, we have no recollection of what we've just read. I think it's really good for us to read the Bible. I think that's something that you ought to do. I think Bible reading ought to be a part of your daily routine. Make it a part of your schedule that you have some time during the day that you pick up the Bible and you read it. But don't do it simply because it is your routine. Spend some time in the Word of God thinking about it and learning about it. Don't read the Bible just to say that you read it. I remember when I was a a child that one of the things that we always did. We come to Sunday school class, and part of the record, not just attendance, not just keeping the offering, but part of the record that the Sunday school teacher kept was how many chapters did you read in the Bible each week. 
And it was always good to be able to raise your hand and say, I read 25 chapters last week. I read 50 chapters last week. And I always made sure that I had my number, you know, and I was, gonna, and I was able to report that. And, and you certainly are better off if you read the Bible. But I think more often than not, maybe that's all we're doing is just counting chapters, just reading verses and not really thinking about what's there. And when you read the Bible like that, I mean, there is some good. I mean, it's always good to read the Bible, but reading it like that is not going to have much of an effect on your understanding. It's not going to really strengthen you very much. And this is one of those passages that you just can't glance at it and get the meaning of it and just skip over it and, 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 and think that you know what it says. As it turns out, verse number 20 here, which seems to be a little bit simple, I would think, is a very controversial Bible passage. And there are scholars that argue over what does John mean here in verse number 20. Now, the good thing about it is that this particular verse, whether you take one viewpoint or the other, is not going to determine your salvation. There's truth found in both sides of the question. But what it does tell us is that reading the Bible, reading this particular section, is not just a simple, quick, easy read to get what John is saying. And so in the midst of teaching about assurance, John has this little twist here about confidence. Now, that's what we talked about last week. We talked about the controversy in this passage. And in the last message, I told you that the difficulty lies in verse number 20 when it says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. And there are two possible meanings to that. And they're good men on both sides. They have opposing views. But which one of them is right? I mean, who has the proper interpretation? Which one did John intend? Well, there's one view that says that we examine our hearts and we find sinfulness. The very best Christian that ever lived has a sinful heart. I mean, he's never going to be able to rid himself of the last little pieces of sin that are there. Satan is always bombarding us with many different evil thoughts every single hour of the day. He's always trying to lead us astray. And even the great apostle Paul said that there are things that I want to do that I know that are right and I don't do them because sin is always present with me. And in those times, the first view of this passage says that we need not fear the unworthiness that's produced in our heart because God knows that we love him. God knows that he's changed us. God put his love there and he knows us better than ourselves. He has compassion upon us, and his compassion is greater than a condemning heart. And so in that sense, the 20th verse is a comforting verse. God knows the work that he's accomplished in our hearts, and no matter what we think, God is always greater than our heart. But the second view is not comforting. This is a view that says that when we have these feelings of unworthiness, that we've not yet begun to understand how wicked that we truly are. And what we tend to do is cover up our sins. We try to justify our bad behavior. And when we do it, God knows the depths of the sin that's in our heart. And so the verse is not really comforting. It's actually judgment from God. And God demands that we fess up, so to speak, and and that we guard our hearts because God knows every sin that we commit. And so in that sense... John is keeping the pressure on, the pressure uh, for a continuous examination to see if we're in the faith. And both of those views are supported by this epistle. I mean, you wouldn't have good men on both sides if you couldn't find some evidence for both of those views in what John has written. 
I tend to lean towards the former view, that I think that this is positive, that we are to seek comfort in the fruits that are produced by living a Christian life. And rather than finding fear there, uh, fear that our confession is not genuine, that what we really need to do is look at the times in our life when there is evidence that we have followed what God wants us to do. Sticking close to the doctrine, sticking close to the commandments, obeying the Lord as we should, loving one another, and that is evidence that we truly are the children of God. Well, secondly, we talked about the condemnation of the heart. Preaching about the holiness of God and preaching about God's commandments and God's expectations for uh, the way that we are to live our lives will cause Christians to very seriously consider the way that they live. Uh, Verse number 20 says, For if our heart condemn us, and there are many translations that actually change that to this, to whenever our heart condemns us. And that indicates that it's a very common condition for a Christian to have a condemning heart. Our hearts will condemn us. And that's because we are sinful people. Even though we've been given a new nature by the Holy Spirit when we were regenerated, yet the the old nature is still there. We're not going to get rid of it until we go home to be in glory. When God gives us a glorified body, then the last pieces of sin are gone from us. But until that time... We have the sinful nature in us, and sometimes we give in to that sinful nature. And when we do, there's an awful feeling that we have failed God. And the comfort that we receive is that God promises there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And so we look at facts. You know, this is very, this is really essential for your salvation. I mean, understanding assurance is always to be looking at facts. Now, we talked about a few weeks ago about experiences and feelings and emotions and how that, what part that plays in it. But you always have to go back to the facts of what God says that, God, that he did for us in our salvation and in, in, in justifying us from our sins. We have received the righteousness of Christ, and that is a fact. That's supported by Scripture. We are we're set free from the guilt of sin, and Christ's righteousness stands in the place of our, of our own. And that truth has tremendous consequences for assurance. Salvation is permanent because we stand on the merits of Christ's perfect life. So we're not judged on the failures of our imperfect lives, uh, life. Ro- Romans says, again, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And so when our heart condemns us falsely, in the sense that our failures will implicate us in judgment, then we know that God's word says otherwise. Once we have believed, we cannot be condemned. Now, moving on from that, we're ready to take up the next important teaching that we find here. And thirdly, tonight we're going to talk about the conscience of a Christian, the conscience. And if there's a reason for you to sit under good, solid Bible teaching, this is it. Your conscience has to be trained to make you aware of sin so that it can convict you properly. Now, every person, whether you're saved or whether you're lost, you have a conscience. And your conscience governs your actions based upon the moral and ethical things that you've been taught. All the moral and ethical principles that you've been taught are what causes your conscience to act in the way that it does. Now, in Romans chapter 2, Paul speaks of the conscience. And he says that it's actually the conscience that renders every person without excuse before God. Now, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 2 for a minute because I think this is a very interesting passage. And Paul speaks of the conscience here. Now, the other day, while you're looking there, the other day I was talking to Lou and 
we were standing at the door, and I, I told him, I said, you know, I think when I get done with Revelation, I may just go to Genesis. And I said, I, I'm not sure I want to do that because there is so much there that I'll probably die before I could ever get done with Genesis. And this is the way that I feel about Romans. It's one of the reasons that I haven't done a verse-by-verse study of Romans yet, even though Romans is one of my favorite books. It'll take a long, long, long time to get through Romans. There's so much material written about it. I have volumes after volumes after volumes of material about Romans in my office. And one of the things that I tend to do is just read and read and read and read in preparation for sermons. So I'm afraid if I get started in Romans, I might go to the office and start reading and you never see me again. And you may not get the first message out. I don't know. But we're going to look at Romans here just, just for a minute here. And, and we'll, we'll never get to the depths of this passage tonight and uh, even just a few verses. But just a small part of this. Uh, sometimes people wonder, why does God condemn those that have never heard the gospel of Christ? And we find the answer to that question in Romans chapter 2. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now what Paul is doing here is making a comparison between Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews had the advantage of, of God's written law. They could read it. They could see what God demands. But reading it and hearing it and knowing it is not the most important thing. The most important thing is to live by it, to obey it. And to live by it, the Word of God says, if you are going to live by the law, you have to live it perfectly. And if you don't live it perfectly, then you are condemned as a lawbreaker. That's the reason why we know that the law can never save us. We're never saved by what we do because we are continually lawbreakers. But what if a person's never seen the written law? What if he doesn't know about it? What if nobody's ever told him about it? He knows nothing at all about what's written in God's law. How is that person condemned? Well, Paul says here that they will also perish without the law. But why? Why are they condemned when they haven't actually heard what God has to say in the Word? Well, we go on to verse number 14. It says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, and listen, their conscience, also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. The answer to why are they condemned is here, by nature, we know the difference between right and wrong. Now, every person has a moral barometer. I mean, that's proof that all of us have been created by God. Every single person has a moral barometer, and it's called the conscience. Now, as we know, the conscience is not perfectly trained. But we do know the difference between right and wrong, even though we've never heard of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments weren't even given until 2,500 years after the beginning of human history. But there was always a moral code that people lived by. People knew that it was wrong to steal. They knew it was wrong to lie and to cheat. They knew it was wrong to kill people. They knew there's an ethical standard to live by. An example of that would be Abraham. Uh, You remember the story of how that Abraham uh, told Abimelech that, that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. And Abimelech was going to take Sarah and make her his wife. But then God came to him in a dream. And he said, Abimelech, if you touch her, you are a dead man. 
Well, Abimelech had never read the Ten Commandments. He had never seen the Seventh Commandment that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But he knew that it was wrong to have Sarah because that was Abraham's wife. He would be committing adultery if he did it. And what does that prove? It proves that God's law was written on his heart without even having read the Ten Commandments. That's what Paul says in Romans 2, 14 and 15. So he says the Gentiles that are without the law are no less guilty because they don't have a copy of the Ten Commandments. They're guilty because God has put the moral code, written it on their heart, and they don't even obey what they already know to obey. He willfully disobeys it. Now notice how Paul says that we know that we've done wrongly. He says their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we are warned by the conscience. Now, just for a piece of information so you'll know how this whole thing ties together, is that the heart in First John that we're talking about, the heart that condemns us, means the very same thing as the conscience. The, those are interchangeable in this, in this context. So he's t- the conscience is talking about that heart in First John. And so when we behave badly, what the heart does or what the conscience does is it blows the whistles, it rings the bells, and then you know that you've done the wrong thing. And on the other side of that, the conscience also tells you when you did the right thing. If you're a Christian and you are obeying the Lord, if you're, follow him, if you're following him, then the conscience constantly affirms that you have acted rightly. And with that comes this good, wholesome sense of being pleasing to the Lord, and that contributes to your just general well-being. But when you sin, your conscience flares up. And if you're truly a Christian, you become miserable by that. And I find that to be true. I hope that you do. Uh, When when I sin against God, the first thing I want to do is beat myself up. My conscience starts to convict me and I become miserable. And I think, why did I do this? And I always find out that the pleasure of that sin is not worth the misery that comes afterwards. Now, if you don't feel that way, then you need to get busy checking up to see if you really are a child of God. And I think that we have to wonder about people. How, how can they go day after day with no feelings of remorse? There is no chastisement. They have no feeling that God is just absolutely beating the daylights out of them. The Scripture says that chastisement is God's way of letting us know that we're his children. And the way that God begins to chastise us is he pierces the conscience. He activates it. And then it begins to accuse us over our sins. So the conscience then becomes the warning system. And if you didn't have that that self-awareness, what you would do is you would keep going deeper and deeper into sin without even realizing the terrible effects that sin has on your spirituality. I mean, it's just like your nerves that that are in your fingers. When you touch something that's hot... Your nerves tell you that if you keep doing that, you're going to destroy the nerve, uh, the, the, the ends of your fingers. You're going to burn them off. And, and the conscience does the same thing with sin. It lets you know that what you're doing affects your spirituality. Now, you can think of it like this. I have this little graphic for you tonight about homeland security. All of you have seen that and the threat levels on homeland security. Well, the better that your conscience is trained, the better that you can assess the threat level of sin. And it's low when you're walking with the Lord. When you're close by him and walking with him, the threat level of sin is low. And the further that you get away from God, then the threat level keeps going up. And when it gets to the severe area, you can rest assured that if you are a child of God, something really bad is going to happen to you. That's the way that it works. 
Now the second thing that goes along with that is that the conscience must be trained. And your conscience will respond to how, how well that it's trained. A couple of weeks ago we were talking about assurance and, and uh, I said your knowledge of the word, your knowledge of good, solid doctrine will always improve your assurance of salvation. Your conscience is trained by that good doctrine and then it responds accordingly. Who thinks about assurance and who doesn't? Well, if you attend a church where they never tell people that they're sinners, they never talk about hell, they never talk about consequences of bad behavior, then you're going to have people in a church like that that never really seriously think about assurance. They don't, they don't need to worry about it. And the reason is their conscience is much less aware when they sin. But if you go to a church where the preacher says, God says, you have to be holy as I am holy. And you go to a church where the preacher preaches hard about sin and about the consequences of bad behavior and talks to you about repentance, then the conscience will react to that, it will hear that, and then it knows the moral standard that it's supposed to go by. And so it's been trained by that, and the conscience responds to it. You see, the conscience, in one way you could say, is your morality. It doesn't substitute for God's law. It's not the standard by which you live, but it's the moral reaction to the standard that it's been trained by. You can see this when you send your children to public school. They go to public school and watch them for a while and see if their morality does not, their morality doesn't deteriorate. You see, when you're in a system that teaches relative truth, that you are the one who is the judge of what's true and moral, then the conscience is going to be trained by that standard. If your children are taught that homosexuality is normal behavior, then they're not going to be offended by it. And, and the conscience has been formed by that. It's formed by the wrong standard. It's the human standard and not God's standard. And so in a culture where we have sexual perversion, where there's fornication, where people live together without marriage, your kids are going to grow up and, and they're not going to be affected by that. Their conscience is not going to bristle whenever they hear that. And it's because the conscience hasn't been trained correctly. The conscience always reacts to the the standard by which it's been taught. The conscience is not the standard. It's the morality that the standard produces. So you can imagine then that what Satan likes to do is to desensitize the conscience. He wants to keep feeding it the wrong information. Misinformation all of the time. And when that happens, the conscience begins to warp. It bends and it twists and it gets crooked. And it can't distinguish between high threat levels and low ones. It chooses wrongly. Now, there's another issue here about the conscience, and and this might be a little bit debatable about whether it's fully possible, at least uh, for a Christian in the worst sense of it, for a Christian. But I think it may be possible in some measure, and that is the conscience may be seared. And that's what happens when you ignore your conscience too many times. A seared conscience is one that rationalizes sin. A seared conscience is one that's been hardened, it's calloused, because you keep abusing it, and when it pricks you, you ignore it. Every time it tries to convict you, you ignore it. And the conscience may have stabbed you repeatedly over and over again in the same place, over the same sin, but then you become resistant to it because you keep ignoring it. And so it keeps pushing on that same wound over and over again. You keep enduring it. And it finally comes to the point where scar tissue grows over the place and finally the conscience doesn't penetrate it any longer. In 1 Timothy, Paul said, this is the way it is with false teachers. 
He said, they are fully aware that they're misusing Scripture. But finally, they tell so many lies that they begin to believe their own lies and they don't care whether they tell the truth or not. And so a Christian can get to that point about some kinds of sin is that he loses the sensibility that that sin is an offense against God. And so he justifies that sin for some, for some selfish reason. I'm sure that if you talk to Gary, he, he could tell you about Christians and, and, and even pastors that come to, for counseling and they have a sin that they won't turn loose of and they've figured out a way to justify it. They rationalize the sin that they commit. And so you have to be very careful about conscience because it's vital for you to be able to function correctly spiritually. Now, fourthly, is the activated conscience. Now, if a real Christian could not become completely seared, his conscience completely seared, it's because the conscience is activated in a new and special way by regeneration. See, a completely seared conscience would be impossible for a Christian because then it means that he would reach a place where he wouldn't be convicted by sin. And then he would reach a place where he would sin with impunity or at least think that he could sin with impunity. And that's the position of the Gnostics that that John is arguing here with. I mean, they thought that sin had no effect on the spiritual man. I mean, you just go sin as much as you want because sin is in your flesh. You don't worry about it. You don't need to constantly beat yourself up over sin because sin is the fleshly part of man, not the spiritual. But a true Christian knows better than that. And the reason he knows better is because his conscience was activated and it's brought up to a level that's impossible for an unbeliever. Here in Paul's argument, or what we read a moment ago in Romans chapter 2, he explains everybody has a conscience. It makes them aware of right and wrong. But what the conscience cannot do is the conscience cannot make the natural man aware of how sin separates him from God. People really don't understand that. You see, a heathen may sin, and he realizes that he sins. He's done the wrong thing. But he doesn't come to God for repentance. He has no sensibility that sins have offended a holy God. And that's why good moral people die and go to hell. They have a moral standard that they live by, and it might be better than somebody else's, but they don't have this idea that I need to repent of my sin, that, that, that I need to come to Christ and in faith believing in him because my sins have offended God. So all they do is they hope that they're good enough, they hope they've done enough, that somehow God's going to dismiss all their puny imperfections and weigh it against the good things that they did, and so everything will be all right. So they don't repent. They don't come to God in faith, realizing the only hope is righteousness in Christ. But when you became a Christian, that's exactly what you did. It's exactly what you did. The Holy Spirit regenerated that dead, sinful soul, and he activated your conscience. He awakened it to the awfulness of sin. So you were convicted, and then your conscience took out a sword, and it started cutting your heart to pieces. So the only thing you could do at that point was to repent. And that's the way the Holy Spirit does. He churns up the conscience. When he starts to work in a person's heart, he churns that up until that person will not rest, until he does something about sin. You simply cannot bear the weight of it any longer. And finally, you get broken and you, come, you get to the point where you must come to Christ in repentance. The first beatitude says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know why that Jesus started out that way? Blessed are the poor in spirit because the poor in spirit has to start with that place that he realizes he is morally bankrupt. 
For the first time, he realizes that he is morally bankrupt. He has nothing at all to offer God. His morality stinks. His righteousness stinks to high heaven. And he realizes he's nothing in the sight of God. So he comes like the publican, smiting himself on the breast, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what happens with an activated conscience. Now, he had the conscience before, but the conscience was laying low. It was never serious about sin. He knew the difference between right and wrong, and so do you. But you correct the wrong to soothe your conscience only temporarily, if you correct it at all. But when you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit and the conscience is awakened to sin, you don't rest until you repent to a holy God. Makes me wonder how a preacher could ever say, you don't need to repent of all your sins. All that you really need to do is to repent of the sin of unbelief. Change from unbelief to belief. And you never really have to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. That may or may not come later. Don't worry about it. That is not the gospel of Christ. That's not the way the Holy Spirit works on a person and and his conscience and his heart. Now, for some people, admittedly, it is a struggle to repent. They fight the conscience, they keep fighting it, and it can take a while. But when that person is under the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, when that process is being done, the call becomes overwhelming. Finally, it overpowers all resistance, and it draws the sinner to Christ. You know, sometimes people misunderstand that whole thing when we talk about the irresistible grace of God. And they say, no, the grace of God is resistible. Uh, How could you say that? Well, you may resist. All people actually resist the grace of God. That's why why they're lost. But when the Holy Spirit begins to draw... And it could go on for a while, but when he draws, the the Holy Spirit has to overcome the resistance or else nobody would ever be saved. Because that's the natural bent of man. We always resist God. So at some point, the Holy Spirit is going to break the resistance. And that's what the Bible says. The Bible talks about God giving you a heart of flesh. Let me read that to you. What does God do with a hard heart? Ezekiel 36, 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now, you know what he means by heart of flesh? Now, don't think of it here in the sense of sinful flesh. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a heart that is sensible to sin. It's one that's been tenderized, one that's tender towards God rather than a heart that's hard as a rock. And that's the way we are in the natural condition. Our heart is harder than a rock. And so what God has to do, he has to put that heart of flesh in there. And when he does that, that heart responds to God's commands. And then it trusts completely in Christ. Well, who can give a new heart? Only God can do that. That's his work. And that's what we mean by the irresistible grace of God. When the conscience is activated, then it's elevated to a place that it's never been before. And that heart that's been activated, that conscience activated, does not rest. It does not stop accusing until you finally repent of your sins and turn to Christ. Now, do you know what happens then? Well, what happens then, fifth point on your lesson sheet tonight, is the conscience is cleansed. The conscience is cleansed. Now, before, sin only bothered us a little. I mean, morally, you thought that you're a pretty good person and um, thought everything was all right. But then you found the truth, and then you repented. And when you repented... Your conscience was cleansed. Now it acts differently. Now 
it assesses sin in a different way. It won't let you cover up sin. It won't let you continue to live in sin because it always beats you up. And that's what John says in verse number 20. For if our heart condemn us. That's what the conscience always does. When it's been cleansed, then it's always activated to flare up when you sin. And so it begins to condemn you. Now, the cleansed conscience makes you super sensitive to sin. So what you can't do, you can't rest easy. You you toss, you turn, you can't get any peace over it. You know, I know that I'm a sinner. And there are times when I go to bed at night and I know that I've sinned against God and I cannot go to sleep. I mean, I toss and I turn, you know, rolling around on the pillow. I can't rest easy until I have repented of that sin, confessed it to God. This is what John says in the first chapter. And it's what he expects all Christians to do. In 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how do you get to the place where, you're, where you confess the sin and you're cleansed from it? How did you get to that place? There's only one answer for it. The conscience did it. Because God changed it. Because God did something with it. It's activated, it's trained, it's cleansed. And so it doesn't let you rest until you confess your sin. Now make no mistake about it. If you are a true believer, your heart will condemn you. It will. It'll happen. And when it does, it will lead you to confession. And that's why we have no confidence in a person that says, Oh, I know that I'm saved. But then they go on living like the devil every day. It's why I don't have any confidence in a church member that says, Well, I'm a Christian, but they never come to church. And they lay out a church and they say, Oh, but my father knows who I am. Well, don't ever use that. So on the one hand, you can say, If my heart condemns you and your assurance is gone, It's gone if you stay there. If you stay there with a condemning heart, then you have no reason to be assured. However, on the other hand, you can say, if my heart condemns me, and then you're moved to repentance and confession, that's when you say, I know I'm saved. And when that happens, you're ready to move on to the next part of assurance. And I'm going to save that part for next week. That there's a cleansed conscience. It beats you up. It keeps pounding on you. When you sin, you'll be aware of it. But then something happens to you. And we'll take a look at that in the second part of verse 20 and verse 21. So a greater realization than conscience will take over. Something greater than your moral compass takes over. And thank God it does because it helps us to understand the whole point of this little letter a whole lot better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for uh, just letting us open your word and look into it and just uh, what you have to say for us here. And I pray for the assurance of Christians. I, I pray that we have examined our hearts and when that condemning heart, when that conscience flares up against us, that immediately we recognize it and we're led to repentance and fellowship with you. Lord, we just pray that you'd speak to us tonight. Help us to be the people that you want us to be. And Lord, we just uh, know that the, the, the knowledge of your word helps us so much in this area. We have something, strength to lean on. Help us to always to keep assessing those facts of what Christ did for us in saving us from our sins and justifying us from our guilt before God. So thank you, Lord, for this. Bless your people tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.